0: Well, amen to that. Beautiful songs. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all. And it's always an honor to open and share God's word. As we move forward in our study on God's abundant harvest, as we look at the four pillars of the church, today we move into the third pillar, which is the equipping of the saints. And all four of these pillars of the church, they, they come from God. When we talk about the church, remember there's the big picture church, and that's the universal church. That's what God's building right now. And it's everyone born again. It's all true believers from every tongue, tribe, nation make up God's church. Also, there's the little picture, the local church where those believers gather and worship the Lord and are then equipped. It's the local gathering place of born again believers to come and exalt God, hear His Word exposited, be equipped, so then they can go out and evangelize the lost. And those are the four pillars we have here at Grace Bible Church. So it's through God's Word and God's Spirit that these four pillars that we do ministry by. They're what we call our philosophy of ministry. And what's our goal for having these four pillars of ministry? Well, it's so all of us will be complete in Christ. Christ. And these four pillars, our philosophy of ministry, help us get there because, first, they bind us to Scriptures. Brandon went through this last week, which reminds us they keep us following God's plan for the church, as rooted in His Word. Second, they hold us steady, which means they keep us from falling for the latest fad or some new or better way of doing church. And third, they give us the standard, which means doctrine matters. And We want to always make sure that we're lighting up correctly with God's Word. And then finally, fourth, they provide us with a shield, which means we've set a biblical course, and our pillars will protect us from drifting off that course and into non-biblical directions. In the last two Sundays, Pastor Brandon has showed us the first two. He did exalting God and expositing His Word. So today we're going to look at the third pillar again, equipping the saints. Our Lord wants His saints to be equipped. Why? Because when God calls us, we repent. And then when we're born again, God's Spirit is then placed inside our hearts to be our guide and teacher. And as we begin our walk with Him, and our walk with the Lord is just that. It is a walk because it starts with one step of faith, and then it's a process of moving in the direction towards Him, learning more about Him, and becoming more like Him. So when we become believers, we repent, and then we're justified, which means that we're now covered in Christ's righteousness. So when God the Father looks at us now, He sees it as if we've never sinned because of what Christ did for us. It's nothing that we've done. It's all because of what our Lord Jesus did on the cross. And also, going on at the same time, we're being sanctified, which means that we're growing in our wisdom and knowledge of what all this means. That now we're a new creation, so we need to live like it. And the only reason we can live like it is because God's Spirit is now living inside of us to guide us and teach us. But just what is the process that God has set up to help each believer grow? Well, God the Father gives us three things. He gives us His Word, His Spirit, and His Church, which His Son Jesus is the head, the cornerstone of. Our Lord Jesus planned to equip the saints. Remember, a saint is someone born again. It's not like in the Catholic Church where all the people you see up on the stained glass windows. No, a saint is someone born again. All those who are saved are saints. So all believers are saints. And so as saints, how do we grow to be more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? To grow in our sanctification. Again, we have His Word, His Spirit, His Church. And church means to be a called out body. And so if we're a believer, we've been called out of this sinful world and into a body of believers, the church. And so we have the universal church and the local church. And all believers are part of the universal church, but also God gives us the local church where believers can come and be equipped. They can get supplied with what they need to live out their Christian life. But how does this happen? What's God's plan for equipping the saints? How does it all work? Well, the best place in God's Word to go and find out what is God's plan for how the church should be equipped and how it equips believers is in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul during his first imprisonment, shows God's plan for the church. This letter Paul wrote, Ephesians, James Montgomery Boyce called Ephesians a mini-course in theology centered on the church. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lays out God's plan for the church. It shows us how God organized the church, how the church functions, and how we function in the church. And it discusses the riches of the church. And it's interesting that Paul calls the church, the church age a mystery in Ephesians 2. That the church was something that Old Testament saints never saw coming. That God would take Jews and Gentiles and make them into one body of believers. The church was a mystery. It's a mystery because Jews and Gentiles had been on different teams But then our Lord Jesus comes and He changes all that. And that's what this great mystery is, that now Jews and Gentiles from all over the world are one body in Jesus Christ. And this was shocking to the Jews. How could this be possible? Well, it's only possible through Jesus Christ. And in the book of Ephesians, this is what Paul wants to show us. The church as one body and how this is possible. He shows us God's plan that will become one body of believers in Jesus Christ, one body with all the parts: arms, hands, fingers, legs, feet, toes, all the rest. And for the head of this body of believers, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head, and we're the body. And Paul wants us to see this interlinking organism. He wants us to see that the church, the church is not an organization. It's not something we just join. It's not a building, but it's an organism, and we're all one in Christ. And that every Christian, every believer is unique and has a a unique contribution to make to the body of Christ. Every believer in this room here this morning is unique, and you have something to contribute to the body. And to help every believer grow and understand their unique contribution to the body of Christ, we have the church. So our Lord equips us, He equips His saints so that... We can, we can have His Word and His Spirit, and the church is there to help us figure it out. And so the, per, the third pillar, equipping the saints. Today, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 16 to see God's plan for the church. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, Ephesians 4. The book of Ephesians was a letter written by Paul when he was in prison, and he He wrote it to remind us that we have been called by God into a relationship with Him. That God chose us. God called us and God saved us. And what what he does in, in the first three chapters of Ephesians is Paul lays out all the things that God has done for believers. He wants us to see what God has done first, that He's done first for us, that He tells us who we were and what God has done. And so now, who we are and where we're going and that we will not go it alone. Remember, it's not Paul's truth. This is not something Paul made up. No, this is, this is God's truth, and Paul is passing it on to us. And so if you're there, let's read Ephesians 4, 1-16 through 16 together, starting at verse 1. And I'm reading out of the Legacy Bible. And God's Word reads, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift." Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs in the fullness of Christ so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the Head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body through the building up of itself in love. And there is the reading of God's Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are... We are so thankful for all that you've done for us. We are are thankful for your Son. We are thankful for your Word. We are thankful for your Spirit. And we are thankful for your church, the body, which Christ is the head. We ask that you open our eyes to the truths today, that you meet us where we need to be met. Father, forgive me my shortcomings and preach a better message than I have prepared. Father, change us, equip us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, the first three chapters of this book of Ephesians, Paul shows us who we were who we were before Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about who we are now in Christ. That every one of us in this room, that we were all dead in our sins and all heading for damnation, but those two wonderful words, but God, by the sovereign grace of God. He chose us. He calls us into a relationship with Him. So Paul shows us in the first three chapters of Ephesians all about the grace of God. And so he begins this letter with who we were but God. And now this is who we are. That we're a new creation. We're we're born again. And now in chapters 4 through 6, because of all that God has done for us, this is how we're to live. And use what He's given us for His glory. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson has said that in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we see how God sees us in Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, we see how the world should see Christ in us. And it's in chapter 4 where Paul begins to unpack God's plan for His bride and His church. Because of all that Christ has done for us, now we have a desire to grow, to be more like Him. And the world should be able to see that because now we've been called into a relationship with Him. God chose us, God called us, and God saved us. But how do we grow? Well, this is what Paul will do here in chapter 4. He shows us God's plan for the church. Here's how we grow and why we grow and live in a manner worthy of that great calling. Our Lord Jesus wants to equip His saints, so He gives each and every believer His Word, His Spirit, and His church. And so today as we jump into this third pillar, equipping the saints, what we'll see today as we look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 16 is God's plan for the church. And so if we were to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, it produces two things. First in verses 1 through 6, this walk with Christ should produce unity in the church. How can all of us believers have fellowship with each other in the body? Well, in Christ, there's unity in the church, verses 1 through 6. And then, second, in verses 7 through 16, this walk with Christ, it should produce a fruitfulness in the church. In Christ, as we grow, there will be fruitfulness in the church, verses 7 through 16. And so, for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling through God's plan for equipping of the saints, God doesn't just call us and save us and just leave us on our own. No, God's plan for the church in Christ is that we have unity and that through that unity we have fellowship and then God can equip us to grow and live fruitful lives. So two truths, unity and fruitfulness. And We have a lot to get through today, so let's hit the ground running. Let's dive in. Let's dive into God's third pillar of equipping the saints. In order for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, first in Christ, There's unity in the church, verses 1-6. through But how can there be unity in the church? Verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called. Verse 1 begins with therefore, and we always have to ask the question, that why is there a therefore? What's the therefore there for? Whenever there is a therefore, we need to look back and see what he just said. So Paul is starting out verse 4 with therefore because of... Of what he just said to us in the first chapters 1 through 3. Everything our Lord Jesus has done for us, which is, all of us were dead in our sins, but now we're alive in Christ. That our Lord Jesus died for us, he chose us, he called us, he saved us, he justifies us, he sanctifies us, he glorifies us. Because of all of that, therefore, therefore I, Paul, the prisoner in the Lord. So why does Paul throw in this little face here? I, the prisoner in the Lord. Well, because even though Paul is a prisoner in Rome, he doesn't see himself as a Roman prisoner. No, he sees himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. And notice Paul wrote, I, a prisoner in the Lord. In, he didn't say not of the Lord. He said, but in the Lord. And so he's in Christ, which means he's in a close personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. So Paul's rejoicing in the fact that he's in chains right now, in prison, because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. And verse 1 begins, because of of what I just got done telling you all, I, Paul, a prisoner in the Lord, because I belong to the Lord Jesus, even though this relationship from a human standpoint can be costly, but it's glorifying to God. In Paul's letters, we always see him referring to himself kind of in this way, right? He, He always says, in Christ, or of Christ, or a prisoner in Him. So because of all of what he's just told us, what? I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called. Paul's urging, imploring, he's beseeching every saint in the church at Ephesus, and he's not just talking to the elders and deacons here, but every believer, every saint that's in Christ to walk in a certain manner. And when he says walk, again, he's showing us this figuratively way of our daily conduct and a manner of life that now because of all that God has done for us, we're now on a narrow path and it matters to God how we walk. And our walk needs to be worthy. And this word worthy has a, has a picture of like a scale. On one side of the scale is our calling and the other side is our, is our walk. And what Paul is saying is that our walk needs to match with our calling. that has come upon our life now. Every believer has been called out of the darkness of this world and into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we respond to this call? Well, now in verse 2, Paul will begin to lay this out. Verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So if we're to walk in a worthy manner, if we're to have unity with one another in Christ, what's the first step? With all humility. God's grace should humble every one of us. Because if we see ourselves accurately, we should live with a lowly, humble mindset for the rest of our lives. So how do we walk in a worthy manner of our calling? Well, we walk humbly, lowly. It's a lowly walk for a high calling. Unity is very important to our Lord when it comes to His church. And humility promotes unity. Humility is seeing ourselves for who we really are in our relation to Christ. Humility is understanding that every blessing we possess or hope to enjoy is from God. Nothing is self-obtained, so so there's no room for self-importance. If we're to grow in the grace and riches of God, we must be humble and teachable every step of the way. And then next is and gentleness. And the word here connects these two, this word and, humility and gentleness together. Because humility will always lead to gentleness. So first, humility. We must lower ourselves beneath Christ. And as we lower ourselves, then there's a gentleness that comes out and into our lives. But this humility doesn't mean that we're weak. Meekness is not weakness. Who is the humblest man who ever walked the earth? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And He wasn't weak. Our Lord Jesus was hard on the Jewish religious leaders, but gentle and humble with those who He needed to be humble and gentle with. Humility is a willingness to stand and do the will of God regardless of the cost. And humility and gentleness, they will lead to the third here, which is with patience. And this word patience has the idea of being long-tempered, long-suffering, and that we would put up with and endure difficult people We shouldn't have a short fuse with our parents or children or our friends or Christians, brothers and sisters. And one of the most eye-opening ways to see how this word is used here in the New Testament is how it's used to show us the attitude of God towards mankind. The patience that God shows us sinners, the fact that He just doesn't wipe us out is amazing. And this kind of patience we need, slow to anger with aggravating people. Like God in Christ has shown toward us, and all three of these will lead to the the next, which he says, bearing with one another in love. Paul has said something like this in Colossians chapter three, and verse thirteen. In Colossians three thirteen, Paul said, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also you should. There's no excuse for no believer to not forgive another. And it's true that we could could never truly forgive, but for God's Spirit now living inside us to make this possible. So what was impossible before is now possible. We're here to bear one another. And there's unity in love. And now in verse 3, Paul's going to show us how these now affect us in our pursuit of unity. Verse 3. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this being diligent, it has an urgency to it, or even a a sense of crisis to it. Because you know, in any true church of believers, there's always somebody that will be wanting to mess this up. Satan will do everything he can to destroy unity, and he'll work through people to do it. So Paul says, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing thing. It must continue to keep going. So we've got to keep at it. Being diligent to keep the unity. And this word unity, it describes a state of oneness. Or being one in harmony and accord. David wrote in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. We can see this all over the early church in the book of Acts. Remember the church is the body and... Our bodies have unity, but just how do we maintain this unity? Well, starting in verse 4, Paul will show us the, this doctrinal basis for true biblical unity. How is this possible? Paul will show us seven truths here, starting in verse 4. He starts out, Here is one body and one spirit, just, also, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. In your translation, verse 4 might begin, there is. In the legacy, it's here is. And notice it's in the italic, which means it was added to the translation to smooth out the sentence. So unity begins with the first two doctrinal truths. One body and one spirit. One body. So how many bodies of Christ are there? There's one. So there isn't just the Presbyterian body or the Baptist body or a Lutheran body or Episcopalian body. It's just one body. One body. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. There's one body. There's one church, and there's one head to that church. Just one body, that's all. One body called out of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And the doctrinal basis for true biblical unity begins with this one body and one spirit. So how many spirits are there? Just one. One Holy Spirit. And He's the power behind the one body, the church. So one Spirit. And it's the same Holy Spirit that called us. He convicted us. He saved us. And He's teaching us. There's only one Spirit and one body. And when Paul ends verse 4 with, just as also you were called in the hope of your calling. Paul's reminding us that because, of, because we are of one body and one Spirit, that means we all have the third doctrinal truth, which is we all have one hope. Because we're all hoping for the same thing. We're all hoping for the same thing beyond the grave. We're all looking forward to the same heaven. And hope is, is a confident expectation of something that's going to happen. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul wrote earlier, in Ephesians 1.13 and 14, he said, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, and here comes the hope, He says, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So the proof that God is going to bring us to the marriage supper in heaven someday is the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's the guarantee of our hope. And So the doctrinal basis for true biblical unity begins with one body, one spirit, and one hope. But Paul isn't finished yet. He's got four more to show us. Look at verse 5. Here's three more. Verse 5, he says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So verse 4 talked about the the Holy Spirit. Now verse 5, we see our Lord Jesus. So how many lords are there? One Lord. Paul said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 12. In Romans 10, 12, he said, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bounding in riches for all who call on Him. There's a biblical unity in the church because we all have one Lord. And then fifth, he says one faith. There's only one Christianity, one Christian faith. There's not 2,500 different kinds of Christianity like we have today. No, there's only one true faith, just one. The common faith. It's the kind of faith that Jude talked about. In Jude verse 3, He said, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And the faith here he's talking about is the content of the revealed Word of God, the very essence of the gospel, because we're all saved by the same faith, which came from hearing the gospel. We believe that God Almighty sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to become like us and die for our salvation. And it's through faith in the works of our Lord Jesus did, not in anything that we've done or can do, but it's in His work of dying for us that we're saved. We have unity because of all. We all have one Lord, one faith, and now He says one baptism. And so what baptism is this? Is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it water baptism that we all do after we're saved? Well, this one baptism is with the Holy Spirit, and we are united with Christ. And this inward process is done by God alone. But this inward union should be shown to others outwardly in the unity of the body. And so after we enter this union, we should acknowledge it publicly. And so the baptism by the Spirit is is then followed by water baptism to show that we are united in one body. Water baptism is a symbol of the real baptism of the Holy Spirit by which believers are made. We're made one by the Spirit. And so the doctrinal basis for true biblical unity is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so in verse 4, Paul showed us how the Holy Spirit brings unity. In verse 5, he just showed us how the Lord Jesus brings unity. And now in verse 6, Paul will show us how God the Father brings unity. Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's been building up to this. How can we have biblical unity, which now ends with God the Father? And he takes us through the Spirit, the Son, and now God the Father. And how many gods are there? One. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. One God and three persons of the Trinity. One God and Father, one Lord and one Spirit. God is a trinity, and that trinity has been and is and always will be in perfect union. One God and Father over all and believers. And for believers, for all believers, our God is our Heavenly Father because we're God created, we're God loved, we're God fathered, we're God controlled, we're God sustained, we're God filled, we're God loved, we're God blessed, and all this is the same God. But for the rest of the world, even though He's also God over them, they cannot call Him their Heavenly Father because to sinners He is God the Judge. And in verse 6, Paul also reminds us of God's supreme sovereignty because He closes with who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father who controls it all. So we have unity because we have the same Father and the One who is above all, the Sovereign Creator of the universe, the Controller of the universe, the Upholder of the universe is inside all believers. It's the same God. So how does He equip His saints? Well, God's plan for the church begins with unity. Our Christian walk is not a solitary walk. No, our walk is a walk with other believers in beautiful fellowship. And all this is possible because we're walking in humility, meekness, and patience with one another. And all that's possible because believers are united through the Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus, and God the Father. We all become one body with one expectation, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father. And so this is how Paul begins, showing us how God equips his saints. He wants us to see this unity. And we need this unity because now Paul is going to go into something that can cause differences among us, differences among believers, and that's the gifts that Christ gives to the body. Because not everyone will get the same gifts. And so now second way in which God equips his saints is that in Christ there's a fruitfulness in the church. We see this in verses 7 through 16. Paul will show us how God's grace should help us grow and produce fruit in our lives by using our gifts. And how does God equip His saints? Well, Paul is now going to move from the unity of believers to the uniqueness of believers. And what we'll see here in these these ten verses, our first in verse 7, is the, the gift of our Lord Jesus to the individual believer, that each and every saint receives a unique gift from our Lord Jesus. And then in verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us why our Lord Jesus has the right to give us those gifts. And then lastly, in verses 11 through 16, these are the gifts of our Lord Jesus to the church to equip his saints. And even though we're all one in the body, we're not identical. And this is why Paul begins this whole chapter with unity and fellowship in the body. He wants us to understand that the key to unity is to realize that Jesus Christ gives different spiritual gifts to members of His body. And So let's look at the first part here in verse 7. The gifts of our Lord Jesus to the individual believer. Verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 7 begins, but to each one. So Paul is now zeroing in again on the individual believer. So as believers, we're one, but in many ways, we're different. No two of us are alike. And no two of us will do exactly the same thing in the church, in the body. So he says, but to each one of us, grace was given. And as we look at verse 7, we can see that grace is an act of giving. And it's in God's nature to give. This is the very core of the gospel because Christianity is not just what we do for God. No, it's a response to what God in Christ has done for us. And here it's each one of us has, each one of us, grace has been given. And so that's everyone who's a believer. That means no one is left out. That means there's no such thing as a non gifted believer. But to each one of us, God. He says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So our Lord Jesus has just granted every Christian, based on His will, a certain gift. And notice the word measure. It is a Greek word, <clears throat> metron, from which we get the word metric or meter. And so each one of us has a measured out gift, a certain quantity, a, a certain gift with a certain limitations, parameters, and capabilities. And our Lord Jesus not only gives each believer a gift, but also He determines the amount of that gift. And so the Lord Jesus measures out for each one of us, and He gives us a gift to help us in the body of the church and help the growth in the church. And so first God gives us His Spirit, so that then when Christ gives us this gift that He measured out and gives, we can use it. Same Spirit, different gifts. And also notice that it's a singular gift. One gift. It's not many gifts, but one. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, As each one has received a gift, employ, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A gift. One gift. So we need to understand the difference between a gift and a talent and an ability. Because we're all born with a talent or ability. Some of us are more musical than others. Some of us can learn languages better than others. We all have different talents and abilities. But as for the gift, that is given at salvation by our Lord Jesus. And we first get the gift of the Holy Spirit of God, and then our Lord measures out the unique grace gift for each of us that we can use along with our talent and ability for ministry within the body of Christ. Again, we're all one body but different gifts. And again, we didn't earn them. It's nothing we do. (laughs) They're given to us by the hand of a gracious Lord. And so at the same time, God who designed the body of the church is the same God who knows who needs what and in what combination to function in the world today. And His church will function together with His sovereignty just as creation does. So our Lord Jesus has set up different grace gifts according to His sovereign grace. And just like each one of us has unique fingerprints, each fingerprint is different and unique. We don't all have the same grace gift. It's always amazing to think of of all the people living today. There's 8 billion people. Of all the people who have ever lived, including those 8 billion, there has never been anyone like you. Have you ever thought about that? You're one of a kind. You're a unique creation. Just like each snowflake is different, not one of us is like the other. No two is ever made alike. We each have a different gift. And we need to be using that gift for the body. I've heard Steve Lawson say that more than once in seminary, Christianity is not a spectator sport. We're not to just sit there and watch others serve. No, we want to develop our gift and use it for His glory for the rest of our life. We want to walk in a manner worthy of our grace calling. Because if we don't do what God has enabled us to do, and use our gifts the way He wants us to use it, then someone without that gift has to try to do it or it's just not going to get done. And so that's the gift of Christ to the individual believer. That our Lord Jesus measures and then gives each believer a specific gift to be used in the body. And now in verses 8-10, through Paul is going to show us why our Lord Jesus has the right to measure out this, this gift grace. In case anybody has a complaint, well, why is he getting this and I'm not getting that, Lord? This is what Paul is going to show us. This is why he has the right to do it. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. (laughs) So what in the world is Paul saying here? Well, he's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. Psalm 68, verse 18 says, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men and even among the rebellious also that Yah, God, may dwell there. But why does Paul quote Psalm 68 here? That seems so random. But really it makes perfect sense when we understand what Psalm 68 is all about. Because if we look at Psalm 68 in verse 1, God sets out to make war with His enemies. And we know that God always wins. And so when God wins, He comes back. And it shows us God in verse 18 ascending the hill of victory. And he's got all the spoils, all the captives with him. And he's climbing the hill to show everyone that he won, and here's all the spoils of victory. And that's the picture Paul wants to paint here. He's using Psalm 68 to show us the picture of the great victory of our Lord Jesus that he won over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And really here in Psalm 68, this is what the psalmist was looking forward to. The day when Christ, the Messiah, would do all this. And when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So when a king of Israel would go out and do battle, and when he would win, the king, after the victory, would go up on the hill of Mount Zion. Mount Zion, the great crowning hill in Jerusalem, the place of great victory, because it was a traditional way to accept the conquering hero. And so the king would ride into the city, and behind him he would have, he would have two things he would have all the spoils of his victory which would be a lot of people from that foreign language who are now brought in as slaves and some of the things that he also took he took the spoils and some riches but there would be a second group behind him notice it said he would lead captive captivity captive so the king would recapture the captives what does that mean well many times other nations had israelites in prison and they used them as slaves And many times when the kings of Israel conquered that nation, they freed those captives and they brought them back to Israel, back home. The king's got his own people who have been held prisoner there. And he has released them and he's set them free. They're coming back free and it's a joyous scene. And that's what Paul sees here in the terms of our Lord Jesus. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he entered into battle with Satan and his demons and his hosts. And he won that battle. And so after the cross, Jesus came back. He was resurrected. And it was like He had descended the Mount of Victory. And He had behind Him the spoils of war. He led captivity captive. And remember, Paul is showing us why our Lord Jesus has won the right to give us these gracious gift. And In verses 9 and 10, Paul is going to explain this. Look at verse 9. He kind of explains it to us. Now this expression, He ascended... What does it mean except He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And then verse 10. He who descended is Himself, also He who ascended far above the heavens so that He might fill all things. So Paul is showing us that our Lord Jesus paid the ultimate price of coming to the earth, suffering death on our behalf, and that qualified Him to be exalted above the heavens, which is to the throne of God, And in order that he might rightfully have the authority to give gifts to his saints. With that victory, he gained the right to rule his church and to give his gifts. And notice that it's that he might fill all things. We see this in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. In Colossians 1 19 and 20, Paul said there, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him whether the things on earth or things in heaven. That's all things. Christ's descent enabled him to gain victory over Satan, sin, and death that was followed by his ascent. And so now he's conqueror, and he has the right to bestow gifts to the church. This is why our Lord Jesus can measure out and give gifts for the equipping of the saints. He paid for the church with His blood. It's bought and paid for by the Lord Jesus. And now in verses 11 through 16, Paul will explain the gifts of Christ to the church and why the church is here. This is how our Lord equips His saints. And we can see when we read Ephesians that the church is really important and very sacred to God. And that's because it's through the church that God's people will gain strength and power from. It's how He equips the saints. So starting here in verse 11, Paul will show us just how does he do this. Paul lists five gifts here for the church, and notice all five here have to do with public speaking. Starting at verse 11, And he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So Paul has just explained in verses 8-10 through 10 how our Lord Jesus has the authority to give grace gifts to the saints. And now he explains how our Lord Jesus will go about to help equip us so, how, so that we can grow and be fruitful. And he does it by giving the church gifted men to look after and help equip us grow. They help us to be fruitful in our walk. And again, these, these five here have to do with proclaiming the Word of God. And let's look at verse 11. We have, we have here some apostles and some prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. So let's look at all these a little closer. First, apostle. Apostle means someone sent forth by another and often they have a, a special commission to represent that person to accomplish his work. So here Paul is talking about the men had been sent out on a specific mission by our Lord Jesus. So back when Paul wrote this, He was talking about the apostles, those men who had walked with Jesus and had seen Jesus and received His commission and authority. So Paul's talking about the 13 men, which were the 12 apostles who were witnesses of Christ's resurrection and then with Matthias replacing Judas. And then Paul himself would be in the 13th. And all these apostles were men our Lord Jesus personally chose and commissioned and boldly proclaimed the gospel and they led the early church. All of them walked and lived with our Lord for three and a half years except for Matthew and Paul. But Matthias was chosen by the eleven after Judas. And then we know that Paul encountered our Lord on the road to Damascus after his ascension. And it was in these 13 apostles who were given direct revelation of God's Word and to proclaim the Gospel with authority and to show everyone that these were true apostles. These men were given gifts of healing and had power to cast out demons. And so when someone came to your town and they proclaimed to be an apostle and they couldn't heal someone or cast out demons, people knew they were fake. This is how the first century church knew that these men were from Christ, that they were true apostles. They had power and authority. So we don't have this kind of apostles anymore. They've since died and now they've gone home to be with the Lord. So we don't have a capital A apostle like Peter, James, and Paul anymore. But we could say that we have small A apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because apostles are sent ones and so we all could be called apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. But nothing like those capital A apostles in the early church. Because they were foundational. They were chosen personally by our Lord to set up the church. And when they died, this kind of apostle died with them. And then next in verse 11 it says, "...and some as prophets..." And Paul's not talking here about Old Testament prophets. No, these are New Testament ones. And so in the early days of the church, when the church was just beginning, these apostles along with the apostles, these prophets along with the apostles were the foundation of the church. Remember, there's three main ways in which God equips his saints his word, his church, and his spirit. And back in the first century, all three of these were just coming on the scene. We see in the book of Acts, we see Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came and indwelled believers. And He still does indwell each and every believer at conversion. Also in Acts we have the church being born, and at the end of the first century we have God's Word completed. 66 books written by 40 different authors, all completed around 90 A.D. And so what we're looking at here in verse 11 is how the church began. And so before God's Word was completed, the newly church begun, didn't have the completed Word yet. But they did have the Holy Spirit and they had apostles and they had prophets. And prophet means to tell, to speak, or to show. To make known one's thoughts and, and to be brought into the light by one's speech. You know, we tend to think of prophets as someone that can predict the future. And that's a part of what Old Testament prophets would do. They would make known future events. And they would also encourage, rebuke, and threaten individuals or nations as ambassadors of God. And then in Interpreter of his will to other men. But the Old Testament prophets were preaching the coming of salvation, that it was future and the accomplishment of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here Paul's talking about a New Testament prophet who did some of the same things as Old Testament prophets. They were a man who would speak for God and would encourage and rebuke. But instead of the future coming of Messiah, they were making known what Christ has already done, that it was finished, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and salvation had come. And they would make his doctrine clear. And this is where a prophet differs from an apostle because an apostle gives the authoritative declaration of the whole body of truth concerning Jesus Christ. But the prophet interprets what the authoritative word and explains that truth so that it becomes very clear. In fact, in Greek a prophet means cause to shine. And is linked with the prefix pro which means before. So a prophet is the one who stands before and causes the word of the apostle to shine. And we see the apostle Peter using this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. In 2 Peter 1:19 Peter said, "And we have a more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark. There's that cause to shine reference until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And when the church was just beginning, before the New Testament was written down, these prophets spoke directly by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these truths they spoke are the truths that we now have recorded in the New Testament. So the New Testament prophets filled the gap, so to say, by proclaiming God's message to the people who otherwise didn't have access to. it, And this is why the Lord sent prophets to proclaim God's word in the first century and His people. And so once the New Testament was completed, these prophets faded off the scene and were replaced next by the men in verse 11. So these first two that Paul mentions, apostles and prophets, are no longer around. But really, how can we be so sure of this? How can we be so sure they're not around? Well, Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul said about the birth of the church, he says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone himself. Notice having been built on, it's in past tense. And so the apostles and prophets were temporary until God's word was completed. Because these prophets and prophets were sent to lay the foundation of God and his church by proclaiming God's revelation and to teach the new truth to the church, so the church could grow and thrive. Remember, these men were not the foundation. Our Lord Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. But these apostles and prophets helped lay that foundation. And what was the foundation? The New Testament, which all points to Jesus Christ. And so what these apostles and prophets were given by our Lord is the New Testament doctrine of Christ, and then they gave it to the church in written form. This is why we don't need prophets like this anymore today, because we have the written, complete Word of God. We could say, like the small A apostles, we have small P prophets. But today, we call them expositors. Expositors of the Word of God and not prophets. And I realize that there are some people out there who claim to be prophets like this, but they're not anything like the prophets Paul is talking about. There's always someone claiming to be a prophet who has a new way to do this or do that. But like Steve Lawson has said, if it's new, it ain't true. We need to stick with the truth, the completed Word of God. But even though we don't have apostles and prophets like this anymore, we are forever grateful for these men for giving us the truths that we can read and study every day. So the first two on this list here, verse 11, are long no longer in operation, but they help lay the foundation for us to be equipped. And so next in verse 11, we see what has now replaced the apostles and prophets. As Paul goes on, he says, and some as evangelists. And when we think of an evangelist, we tend to get an image of someone in our mind like Billy Graham or D.L. Moody. But there's a simple definition of an evangelist. An evangelist is basically someone who presents Jesus Christ where Christ is not known. So an apostle faded away, they ceased because they had a unique ministry, and evangelists took over. In fact, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4-5, he told him, do the work of an evangelist. And what these early church evangelists did was they would go to a place where Christ wasn't known, they would preach the gospel, they would stay there until they built a church, then they ordained elders in that city who could take over the leadership of that church, and then they moved on to a new area. And today it's really anyone who goes out and proclaims the good news, who preaches the gospel and calls for repentance, like a missionary. An evangelist has a special gift of communicating the gospel in understandable ways to people who are not yet Christians. And so an evangelist is still in operation. Will, <laughs> they'll be needed until our Lord Jesus has finished building His church, so not until He comes again. And this is how the Lord builds His church. This is, the, this is God's plan for church growth. This is Church Growth 101. It's saints being equipped and then going out and sharing the gospel, and then the church is the place where those who repent and believe, they go and they come, and they're equipped so they can grow. And then they can go out and share the good news with others. And then in verse 11, we see the last two here, and some as pastors and teachers. And the and between pastors and teachers shows that these two nouns are connected. The pastor is a shepherd and teacher. And so all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. And the word here for pastors means care, protection, leadership. And it's protection protection and leadership of the man of God for the flock. It's interesting that the word pastor only appears once in the whole Bible, and it's right here in verse 11. And it's interesting because it's a Latin word which simply means pastoral, like a pastor, which fits with us being like sheep and our Lord Jesus as our shepherd. And so what's God's plan for the church? How does the Lord God equip His saints? Well, we're equipped through men that our Lord Jesus has gifted as pastors and teachers. And our Lord Jesus is our true shepherd and we're his flock, but he gives grace gifts to men to watch over his flock and to equip them. And so what's the difference between an evangelist and a pastor? Well, an evangelist wins people to Christ and builds up the flock, and the teaching pastor teaches. He teaches and shepherds that flock. And this is what our Lord Jesus said to the Apostle Peter three times in John chapter 21 and verses 15 through 17. Remember John 21, 15 and 17, our Lord said to Peter, Tend my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And we know that Peter never forgot this because in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, in 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter said this, he said, shepherd the flock of God among you. We're all part of God's flock, and He has appointed men to shepherd His flock. How does God equip His saints? Through through the church, His Word, and the Holy Spirit. And God gives the church evangelists, pastors, shepherds, and teachers for to do what the Lord told Peter to do, and what He tells us, which is to feed the sheep. And this is all done through His Spirit, His Word, and His church. So as sheep, we need to graze or feed on the Word of God, the Word of truth, And nothing but the truth. Sound doctrine is solid food. And that's what we do here at GBC. But how can we be so sure that having pastors and teachers is, is how the church is to grow? How God has equipped the saints? We'll look at verse 12. In verse 12 he says, For equipping the saints for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ. The reason why God gives these gifted men to the church is So the saints might do the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ might be edified. But really the work of the ministry is not the work of the gifted pastor or teacher. He's simply to equip them from the Word of God. He's to teach the Scripture so that they are built up in the faith, they're strengthened, and they're given sound doctrine of the biblical knowledge and the application of it, and then they're to carry on the ministry. And so when we feed on the truth, the Word of God, and let the Holy Spirit teach us, and use our grace gift in the church, the whole church matures. When we minister to each other in unity, when we serve one another in fellowship, when we use our gift towards one another, then the whole body grows to maturity and God's will is fulfilled. And so, as we look at the third pillar, equipping of the saints, we're answering the question, why do we go to church? Why do we need to be equipped? Well, look at verse 13 until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So what Paul's telling us here is that God's not satisfied with people just going to church. He's not satisfied if they're decent, respectable people. No, He demands His saints, His people, to be full-grown, spiritual men and women, strong and vital, that they be in the image of Christ. And that the church collectively be the measure of the fullness of Christ. So that the purpose of the church is not for unbelievers to come and be saved. No, the purpose of the church is to mainly equip and build up the body of believers, the saints who are already saved so they can become mature. And every believer should be developing and becoming more and more like Christ. We're never going to be sinless, but we we should sin less. And so these gifts are needed until we're mature and since... We all have work to do, and we all need to be equipped. And now in verses 14 through 16, Paul is going to show us the result of this equipping of the saints. And we see three truths here, starting in verse 14. So that we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Paul is telling us that it's children who get tossed here and there by false doctrine. So when the church is mature, they they won't be hassled by or fall for false doctrine. John said in 1 John 2, and verse 14. In 1 John 2, 14, John said, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. If we're equipped by the word of God then we can stand strong and not be carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's a stability, there's an anchor in our equipping. And what's another result of this equipping? Look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, that is, Christ. Christ. So the but here shows that this is in contrast with the false teachers and their false doctrine. We're to speak truth in love. And the word speaking here is again in present tense, so we're to be continually, always speaking truth in love. Paul already went through why we're unified, why we have this wonderful fellowship. So because of our being equipped and mature, the result of this maturity is that we speak truth in love. As a believer, we're to follow the truth in love. That is, we're to love the truth. We're to live it and speak it. So in verse 15, the re, the first result of our equipping was to grow into Christ. And second, we'll see in verse 16 now here ours, that our equipping is that we are now to grow out of Christ. Verse 16. From whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies. So as believers, we're, we're being joined together. And the only way that's possible is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again here, the words being joined and held together are in present tense. It's still ongoing. And so it's like a carpenter building a house. All these different pieces of lumber and material. But they're all worked together. They're all made to fit to be build a house. And so in the church, all parts come together because of His power. And this is ongoing. And then verse 16 goes on, according to the properly measured working of each individual part. The church has many members in the body and all members, again, don't have the same gifts or office. The church is a body and for it to work properly, everyone must be using their gifts. John Calvin, John Calvin said, if we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. If we're being equipped and are being in unity, here's the result. The last part of verse 16. He says, Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So while God does assign some to be in what we call full-time ministry, it doesn't mean that those other jobs and roles aren't something just as important. Everyone is equally important in the body of Christ. In the church. So how does God equip His saints? By His Spirit, by His Word, and by His church. In God's plan for the church, the third pillar, the equipping of the saints, is that the church in Christ has unity and can have fellowship with each other to walk in a worthy manner of our calling. And that in the church, in Christ, each saint has a, has a fruitfulness that is growing, is being equipped, because God has given us through His Spirit Grace gifts to help us be equipped through His Word so we can become mature and more like Christ and then help build His church. This is the third pillar, equipping of the saints. And so as we conclude today, as we wrap this up, every one of us here today is different in so many ways, but we're all brought together as one in Christ. God has called us, saved us, indwelled us, and gifted us individually and uniquely to put us together in such a way that we can be a blessing to the whole body of Christ. God has given grace gifts to His church and men to equip those saints. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, that's you, you're a saint. We have to ask the question, are you growing? Are you fruitful in your Christian walk? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? This is God's plan for the church. The third pillar, equipping the saints. We need to become mature men and women so we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Next week, as we we continue in God's abundant harvest, Pastor Brandon will be looking at the fourth pillar of the church, which is evangelism, God's plan for church growth. And so we need to be maturing and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Spirit, Your Word, and Your Church. We thank You for equipping us, equipping us through men You've gifted and by giving a gift to everyone here that is a believer. Father, we didn't earn it. (laughs) We didn't deserve it. It was all given by You. And help us to use that gift. To pray for each other. To minister to each other. And to be ministered to. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.